0: With the sun setting in Malibu, former Marine Robert Spangle is perched atop Point Doom.
1: Solid copy from
2: Robert.
0: Using binoculars and a crude map drawn by hand.
2: Can you take a look across PCH up to Ramirez and see if there's anything burning there?
0: Spangle is spending his days and nights searching for hot spots down below so he can radio in to a team known as the Point Doom Crew. That is helping battle the dangerous Woolsey fire. That was a clip
3: from CBS News. The video then cuts from Robert on the Hill to Sam McGee in a gully. Sam's white t-shirt is covered in ash, and he's walking with a black walkie-talkie up to his ear. That's one of the walkie-talkies Brianna Strange brought by boat. This carpenter turned spot fire hunter has been putting out fires for days now. Malibu at this point was still without running water, power, or cell service. And the roads to get there were a total mess. Power lines fallen all over the place. Dead trees, house parts, burned out cars. This, plus gas lines still on fire, were just some of the reasons why the mandatory evacuation for Malibu was still in place. People who evacuated were desperate to get back in, and make sure their houses were still standing. But the roadblocks were now firmly in place. Their only hope was that emergency responders and those residents still in Malibu would watch over their homes.
2: We're definitely able to save some properties from going up. There's three or four that these guys got to that would definitely be gone.
0: The crew is one of several in the area, volunteering to help emergency services teams. That was Robert again, He and his
3: friends were trying to fill in the gap left by first responders who, if you remember, had been stretched to the max by three major wildfires and a mass shooting within a week. And if you noticed, the reporter calls them the Point Doom Crew, not the Point Doom Bombers. And in this series so far, I haven't called them that either because up till now, they haven't taken on that name. Something that's so rooted in the surf culture of the point. But that's about to change. This is Sandcastles, a podcast about home, how we create it, and why we fight so hard for it. I'm your host, Adriana Cargill. In this season, we're following the Point Dune Bombers, ...as they defend their community during the Woolsey Fire in Malibu, California. This is Episode 4, Under Siege, Part 2. If you haven't listened to the other episodes, or at the very least, Episode 3, please go back and do so. This episode probably won't make much sense if you don't. As a reminder, there will be explicit language in this episode... On the morning of Monday, November 12th, around 91,000 acres had burned, and the fire was now at 20% containment. Just a note here. Containment doesn't mean 20% out. It just means that emergency personnel think 20% of the fire is not likely to spread beyond confinement barriers like rivers, oceans, trenches, or land that's already burned there were still Santa Ana winds blowing, and parts of Malibu were still on fire, sending embers drifting through the air. People in Point Doom knew if they left, they weren't getting back in. On land, sheriff roadblocks cut off the PCH, or Pacific Coast Highway, and in the sea, their boats kept anyone from docking. They were walled in on all sides, It was also the fourth day the community had been cut off from the outside world, and without generators and the gas to power them, fridges and stoves were useless. During those early days, finding food was a real issue. Sam McGee told me he'd often run into people, and conversations would go something like this
2: where are you going? Oh, you're going over there. Okay, cool. I'm going to go do this and I'll be back in an hour and we'll, we'll have a, f- a granola bar. We ate granola bars. I ate granola bars for a week straight. At least, at least a week.
3: People in Point Doom were worried their houses might still burn. So they weren't leaving. Even if all they had to eat were granola bars and supplies were finding their way there, even though the authorities were trying to block them. The amount of food and other stuff coming to Leo Harrington's house was starting to be a bit too much. His friends had started using it as a meeting place a few days before, but pretty quickly, everyone else still left in the neighborhood started showing up too, and it was getting pretty chaotic. At some point, Drew Jacobson... Yes, the Drew of legendary Sloppy Joe fame showed up. Drew's middle son, Kelly Jacobson, had raced back to see if his family was okay. He was relieved to find that his mom, dad, and brothers had all survived the fire. Kelly's a close friend of Leo's, and he was over at the Harrington's trying to figure out what to do with all the supplies. Here's his
4: mom, Drew. And Kelly and I were both saying, This is getting you know, on this is getting dangerous for the Harringtons house to have all this stuff here. And Kelly said, Yeah, it is. But where's the next big place we can go? And I said, I said really point let's go to Point Doom school parking lot.
3: The Point Doom Elementary School parking lot. It's the only big wide open space on the point. It's central and everyone knows where it is. So Drew's son, Kelly, told people.
5: Alright, you guys, every shipment that comes in now you bring him to the Pointeum Elementary School.
3: His background in film production and logistics really starts to shine here.
5: I basically just went up there and I looked at it like a production, basically. It was like, how would I set this up to like have people come through a line, get things and, and leave and go back to their houses.
3: People were already in the parking lot when he got there.
5: People had heard that I was bringing gas up there already. And they were like, where's the gas? I'm like, look, I'll open up shop in like two hours. And we can have all the gas and all the food and everything. Everyone can just come by. Just give me two hours to set this up.
3: Word spread quickly and people just started coming out of the woodwork. They brought chairs, folding tables, Christmas lights, generators, and whatever food they had. Drew told me about it as she drove me around the point a year or two after the fire.
4: I mean, It was pretty amazing how fast it came together. And then how people heard about us, because nobody had communication. It was just, except the boys with their walkie-talkies.
3: When Kelly opened up shop a few hours later, the Point Doom Release Center was born. While Kelly ran the show, Drew and a group of other moms who'd stayed took shifts staffing the place. Drew told me about it standing in the Point Doom Elementary School parking lot, where it all went down.
4: We had a grocery section at this end, which was all the um, canned goods and People could just take home. Then we had our little hardware store with flashlights and masks and batteries. We needed tons of batteries. And then we had all the water, cases and cases of water. And then, I guess you'd call it restaurant area. We, oh, no, pharmacies where you had Band-Aids and any toothpaste, tons of toothbrushes. Because nobody had anything. And then at the end, before the gas, we had clothes. We had lots of clothes that people were do- bringing by to Domain. Because people had nothing but was on their back.
3: Rihanna decided to stay after she brought the walkie-talkies. She was there that first day, at the Point Doom Relief
1: Center. I will never forget one older guy came up to me and he said, I just lost everything. You know, what do I do? I was like, "Uh, let's start with, let's get you a sweater. Let's, you know. And then someone would walk him down the line and there was a whole lineup
3: of, okay, here's this, here's this, here's this. People from all over Malibu started
4: coming here to get supplies, take refuge in each other, And eat, and then we had the middle part, which was all the food. We had coffee and donuts every day, and then we'd set up all these tables in front every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. At this point, most people's
3: food was spoiled. Their refrigerators or freezers, useless, without power. There were no grocery stores or restaurants open for miles, so
4: everyone pitched in what they had left. And all the boys would come and eat. The firemen started coming to eat. The sheriffs started coming to eat. It must have made for some pretty interesting
3: dinner conversation, considering part of the reason no one had anything to eat was the sheriff blockade.
4: They even had food for animals. Hay. We had piles of hay over here for people to come and get if they needed it. And we were delivering it, too, because a lot of people up the canyons couldn't get out because of the roadblocks. All those
3: animals that were at Zuma Beach on Friday night, ostriches, llamas, horses, many of their barns and their feed had been destroyed by the fire. No one knew how long the mandatory evacuations would last, or how long the fire was going to burn. So, this animal feed was critical. And in a different corner of the parking lot, the most precious commodity,
4: gas. Tyler and Brianna and they ran the gas All the, so they had all these gas cans and they were in that corner over there.
3: It would become the most hectic part of the relief center. Tyler Hopman, the kid who made belts out of rattlesnakes and grew up in a house shaped like a pyramid came that first day. Monday, November 12th. When he got there he did not like what he saw.
6: When I got there I saw how much gas we had and it was like super sketchy.
3: Tyler's a mechanical engineer in the automotive industry. I talked with him during COVID times, so we met in a park and there's some background noise here. He knows a lot about fuel and a lot about handling it from being part of race car pit teams.
6: I know how dangerous fuel is and nobody there was really managing it correctly.
3: Fumes were his biggest worry. They're invisible, but incredibly dangerous. An ember floating through the air can come in contact with them and explode. That's right. Just one ember, one tiny little thing, could cause a huge explosion that spreads to other gas cans and blows up the whole parking lot. Tyler saw gas cans that were totally open, spouts without caps, containers randomly lying around. So he decided to manage it himself. And Brianna took note.
6: And she was like, um, I'm just going to stick with you because it seems like you know what you're doing the best. And I feel like we could really, like, manage this gas situation together really well. And we're like, I'm like, yeah, let's, let's do it.
3: They had to ration the gas because they only had so much. One gallon per household at first. Gas, generators, and food were the things in most demand, and it was hard to keep track of who they'd already given what to. Well, Brianna didn't know a lot about fuel. She's an attorney, so she knows a lot about documenting things and being organized. So she started
1: a list. Because I wanted to make sure that we weren't giving gas to the same people over and
3: over again, but everyone's wearing masks and there's smoke and it's chaotic. She asked for IDs and started recording who came and how much they took gas was life at this point. Without it, you couldn't get around, couldn't power your generator to have light, food, heat, use your phone. Tyler, the mechanical engineer.
6: First day, we probably had like 30 gallons of gas, probably 15 gallons of diesel, and organized it and made sure it was safe. All the lids were tightened on there and all the empties were going back to other people. Uh, to fill up again and bring it back because there wasn't a gas can available in any, like, Home Depot gas station or anywhere for, like, a 50-mile radius.
3: 50 miles is likely an exaggeration, but people were so crazy for the gas that Brianna didn't want to leave it unprotected. At night, when everyone else went home to sleep at someone's house, she decided to stay and guard it. One, because if...
1: The direction of the fire changed. I didn't want a random spark to come and ignite the whole parking lot. I don't know what I personally thought I was going to do, but I just felt an obligation to stay. Second, she was worried about looters. So I slept in the parking lot just to make sure nothing was taken, which was really scary. And some of the boys would stay there until like pretty late. They would eventually go home, but at least she had a place to sleep. This guy. His name is Barry. I don't know his last name. I don't know anything about him. He lived on Point Doom and he brought down this like crazy bus that he had redone in like this 1960s kind of style. <laughs> He's like, you guys can sleep in this bus. So she did.
3: Her first night there alone, it gave her a moment
1: to reflect. I think when, the, when it was calm at night, when people stopped coming in to get supplies and stopped coming in to get gas and you could just hear the wind and it smelled like smoke, that's when I was really scared. And then during the day when things got really crazy and people were screaming, that's when I was like, oh, I got this. It's fine. I can handle this. This is just crazy people screaming.
3: No problem. As more supplies came in, it continued to get crazier for them. And that crazy was being fed by shipments coming in at Paradise Cove via boat. Paradise Cove is a tiny neighborhood on the east side of the point. They were being dropped at a small sandy beach with a restaurant and a pier. On Monday, operations were still small. Keegan Gibbs here.
7: It was just like me and a couple of the guys just paddling out on surfboards, meeting a boat, grabbing a couple gallons of gas.
3: Just like they had with Brianna's walkie-talkies. But the amount of stuff started getting bigger and bigger.
7: And then people started finding out about that. And next thing you know, within like three days, there was just like boats coming in by the like, literally like a dozen boats coming in all at once.
3: Ships from LA and as far south as Redondo Beach and even a billionaire's yacht were being used to bring supplies in. Kelly was crucial in setting up the relief center, but also in receiving supplies. Here's Kelly.
5: And then all of a sudden... Paradise Cove started getting giant shipments of gasoline and food and generators and all coming off of boats. And we don't have other dinghy boats really to receive them. So we were paddling out there on surfboards and bringing in like thousands of gallons of gasoline.
3: As Monday blurred into Tuesday, the winds began to die down. And as the skies cleared up, the threat of fire began to fade. The fire was now at 35% containment. Instead of spending all his time looking for spot fires, Robert, the former Marine, switched to helping coordinate the arrival of boats and getting their supplies to shore. Here's a clip of what daily supply coordination sounded like. And as a note, you can really hear how windy it is. This is Ryan The need of the community was shifting, so they shifted too. Kelly here.
5: Everybody was down at Paradise Cove just receiving this amazing shipment of support, and they were down there, kept going with boards. They got, ended up finding jet skis. <laughs> they ended up finding uh, different ways to do it. They were pulling stuff by levers off, like generators with ropes off the side of the Paradise Cove pier from boats. And, uh, they would all get in the truck and go straight to the Point Doom Elementary School. And from there, we'd distribute it.
3: Everything they distributed was free. And Tyler Hopman, through a friend connection, was able to get Verizon to set up an internet hotspot at the relief center. Now, the group was able to put the word out on social media about what supplies they needed. Then, the boats would just show up. Sometimes it was their friends or community members they knew. But other times... It was strangers just wanting to help. And
0: with Malibu Roads cut off, people there are bringing in supplies by boat, including water, blankets, diapers, gasoline, and even some ice cold beer. This was that moment the one I'd seen
3: way back in 2018 when I was working as a news producer and I just happened to walk by and look up at the TVs the very moment they were showing these surfers paddling in supplies. It was that very scene, the one I just couldn't get out of my head. Since then, I've found some other videos of it too. For example, in some pixelated cell phone footage taken from a supply boat by Benjamin Oreskes for the LA Times, it's sunny out. There's maybe a little yellow smoke still hanging around, There's guys on jet skis, Zodiacs, paddle boards, surfboards, and there's a couple different sized boats just drifting outside of the cove. I see Leo Harrington, the one whose house became a gathering spot for volunteers. In the video, he's in an all black wetsuit with a black visor on. People are tossing cases of water bottles. They look like 40 packs and he's catching them and then stacking them on his powder blue paddleboard, he's arranging them into a giant pyramid shape. Here, here then Leo and the other surfers turn around and paddle into shore. Here's Leo.
8: I had never done something like that as far as taking supplies in one when t- you know in, in times of need to the beach where people are actually like dividing it up for people's homes that have burned down. It was kind of up to the people with the water expertise to to get that to them.
3: On top of being a lifeguard and running a nonprofit teaching kids with special needs how to surf, he also does marine and water safety for film shoots. In the video, he makes balancing a pyramid of water bottles look so easy, and so do his friends. He trusted them and their ability to pull this off. Not everyone could. Sam here.
2: I know that there was a couple of people that tried to paddle, but didn't, weren't necessarily right for the job that took a couple of spills.
3: In the background, there's a white sheriff boat with a little American flag on it, watching everything go down. If the sheriff caught any person getting off one of the supply boats and trying to make a run for it in a kayak or something, they'd motor in between them and the shore, forcing them to turn around and get back on the bigger boat they came from. The surfers who left shore, but didn't set foot on a boat, seemed to occupy some magical space between leaving and not leaving, that the sheriff found acceptable. In LA Times photos from that day, I see Leo Harrington grabbing hold of a jet ski and hitching a ride to the supply boat. He and the other surfers would spend the whole day like this, unloading boat after boat. It was a lot of physical work, but.
8: There's no place that I would rather be than back here helping. I would feel so restless and completely helpless if I were anywhere else.
3: This is how most of the supplies at the relief center got there painstakingly, item by item, by hand passing from one community member to the next. People on the shore would cluster around the surfers, grabbing all the stuff. There were tons of people helping, and one of them stopped to talk to a CBS News reporter.
0: George Hotman is one of those good Samaritans, helping shuttle in supplies even after his and his son's homes were destroyed.
3: That's Tyler Hotman's dad, wearing black Ray-Bans. Tyler was busy running the gas corner with Brianna, while his dad was helping to receive supplies.
6: It's a freaking amazing. This is a joyous part of the whole disaster that we just went through.
3: That people are coming together. Yeah. It was amazing. I could see that standing in my newsroom, watching this scene in awe. On the news, it looked spontaneous. And to some extent, it was. And to some extent, it wasn't. Everything they did came about organically, but the seeds of Malibu's ranch past, of that rural, self-reliant, take matters into your own hands mentality, they were already within them, just waiting for the opportunity to sprout. I've spent hours looking through newscasts and videos and found almost nothing that told me about the story of what went on in Point Doom in the days immediately following the fire. That last CBS News clip is within a longer story about other areas of Malibu, too, and in total, it's still less than five minutes long. There's some magazine stories, small articles, and other little snippets gracing the internet here and there, but nothing really digs into what life was like when the cameras left, which is what I was most interested in. I remember so clearly watching the TV and having this sense that there was more going on here than I understood. But now, learning everything I have about this group and the place they come from, I had no idea. No idea how coordinated this was. No idea how complex the systems they built were, with no formal training, by the way. I had no idea how many people were involved either. Those physically present, and those who weren't, but had taught their way of being to the new generation. How many spider strings, carefully woven over decades, had come together to create a net that allowed this community to catch itself mid-fall? At some point, everyone in the group was involved in getting supplies to shore, Keegan, Kelly, Andrew, Sam, Bo, even Brianna, who doesn't really surf. They paddled in water, toilet paper, cardboard cartons of fruit, 50 pound generators, and of course, tons of gasoline. While they were receiving this massive outpouring of support and supplies, about 500 miles to the north, the situation in Paradise was in stark contrast. The campfire, destroyed around 150,000 acres versus the near 97,000 of Woolsey. 19,000 structures were gone up north, compared to 1,600. And the death toll there was in the 40s and climbing, while Malibu had lost three people. Keegan was hyper aware of how this whole boat delivery surfer paddling scene may have looked to people on the outside.
7: On the news around here, you see a bunch of like surfers like collecting potato chips. You know, at one point somebody brought a big yacht in and it's like, come on. Like, it's, it's especially from the outside, it's ridiculous. You're like, why, like, we didn't really, really need that stuff, you know? We didn't really need everything that we received, but we did need that sense of community, right? And people needed to offer something to feel better about the helplessness that we all experienced.
3: In all the heaviness, they were able to slip in some humor here and there, even if it was sibling rivalry.
6: Jamie and Kelly Jacobson, they constantly bicker like, nobody's business they're brothers and sometimes it gets out of hand and they were bickering over the radio and robert had to step in and say hey guys you know we got to keep this bickering to a minimum we got to keep this radio like channel clear and then um i chimed in and said uh negative on that robert jamie and kelly bickering is the best part about this fire (laughs) over and then like everyone like Like, everyone died after that.
3: Laughter was much needed, especially for Tyler and Brianna manning the makeshift gas station. People's appetite for gas was insatiable. It would soon challenge the limits of this group. By now, they'd doled out hundreds of gallons of gas to hundreds of people. They'd created a system to move people in and out of their gas corner, which was good because demand was reaching a fever pitch.
6: It was like straight up Mad Max, like people were going, were frantic for gas. We just started to get more and more gas and it was just like really starting to get hectic.
3: So many people were coming in and out, hundreds, mostly from Point Doom, but some from other areas in Malibu too.
4: Drew here. It was a funny mix of good and bad, because some people came, kind of showed their colors of panicking and saying, I want gas. I want food. You know, I want... You really saw that. But most of all, it was just wonderful and people were just very appreciative. They had dozens of
3: gas cans sandwiched together in one corner of the parking lot. They tried to develop systems to manage it all, but the sheer amount of people coming through created problems. For example, diesel cans were yellow and gasoline cans were red. But people weren't paying attention. Tyler here.
6: And they would fill up diesel in regular gas cans and get it all mixed up.
3: If you put diesel or gas in a car that's not made for it, it can destroy the engine. So?
6: We had to start huffing the gas, sniffing the gas and, like, making sure it was gasoline or diesel for the vehicle that we were filling up. And so on top of, like, The smoke and the ash and the heat and the wind. We'd have to sniff the gas.
3: This is not safe for a whole host of reasons. But the big one is that it creates another opportunity for those fumes to ignite. He also had to lift the gas for hundreds of people and manually put it in their car day after day. He and Brianna were exhausted On top of this, people. Brianna here. People
1: would be trying to go
3: behind the desk and grab things,
1: and there was also sometimes a level of entitlement. It's like, well, I want 10 gallons. It's like, okay, well, all this gas is donated. You're not offering to pay for any of it. And we have two gallons per household right now. If you want to bring in more gas, that's amazing, but this is what we're doing right now. And if you want two gallons for free, great. If not, back up.
3: This turned out to be one of Brianna's strong suits.
6: I couldn't ask for like a better teammate during that time. Like A lot of stuff would come up, a lot of different personalities, and she would be able to handle so many things that I couldn't and vice versa.
3: Trust is really important here. Not just between Brianna and Tyler, but also they had to make judgment calls on whether the people asking for gas were lying or not. So I had people come in and say, I'm trying to
1: get gas to 10 people up this canyon. Can I take 20 gallons? It's like, well, we really have right now, we're rationing between like one and two gallons a household. So it's like, sure, you can take 20 gallons, but you've got to promise me that you're actually using this for your neighbors and you're not just taking it to like store it at your house. But? Then you start playing the game of like, well, you were my softball coach in fifth grade, so I trust you. You know, you could take it.
3: You never knew who you were going to see or what was going to happen. Sometimes, sometimes, There were unexpected reminders for Brianna of why she was there. There were kids who came up at a certain point,
1: and one of them was wearing this t-shirt that had been made for Johnny.
3: The shirt said, Fly Free, a reference to her brother Johnny's love of base jumping. And the accident that took his life. And I was like, oh
1: my god, I can't believe you're wearing that t-shirt. He's like, yeah, I know Johnny's out here with us.
3: Some people were getting so out of control, they started hammering the police department to get some type of security around the relief center. It got too hectic for their group to meet there, so they started meeting at a house away from the school parking lot. Kelly here.
5: We had a second little house across the street that we were calling the castle. That was our real headquarters for just like the core group of people that were there in the beginning
3: they held a lot of group talks to discuss the day's events and make a game plan for the next. They were now two days into the relief center thing, four days since the fire front hit, and the group was in pretty ragged shape.
6: Everybody is exhausted. Nobody slept. Everybody that's still around Malibu at that time is, like, just on pins and needles because we don't have running water. We don't have power. We don't have anything.
3: In fact, The relief center was one of the only places where the toilets worked. Someone who worked at the school had opened the stalls. Remember, without water pressure, toilets can't flush. I think a lot of people were peeing in bushes. People were getting by. While some things were working, others were going sideways. What order they established could easily be thrown out of balance. People's patience was definitely running thin by now. Here's video from Brianna in the Point Doom Relief Center. Hey, everybody, stop it. Uh, yeah, you're not helping here. Yeah. Stop. Tyler. stop Tyler. You're not helping. You're giving
0: people wrong information. Everybody, shut up
5: right. and let me tell you what's going on. Because I just spoke to Fire You Spoke to Fire. Do so you want the information or you don't? Y'all can argue, or you let the person actually knows. Because I'm the
4: one on the radio with them. I'm talking. I'm talking to Whittle. I'm gonna give you the info. Everything's
3: Some people had lost everything. And they were so fragile, anything could push them over the edge. In the early afternoon on Tuesday, things started to spiral out of control. And quickly. Here's Tyler.
6: This guy comes in, just really erratically, cuts the line for gas. Like, almost hits a couple people coming in. Gets out of his car. It's completely tweaked out and comes out and goes, I need gas. Like, so psycho.
3: He was a big dude, like 6'3", 250 pounds.
6: And I'm like, hey, man, like we'll get you gas. You have to wait in line, though. He's like, I don't wait in fucking lines. I'm like, hey, man, you got to calm down.
3: But he does not calm down.
6: He's like, I don't
3: wait in fucking
6: lines. I got supplies. I got some ice. Throws out like a huge bag of ice like, probably like a five-pound bag of ice out of the back of his truck, and it hits, like, an old lady in the leg. I'm like, that got me, like, fucking pissed. I was like, hey, man, get the fuck out of here. You're not welcome here. Go. You need to leave right now. And he got, like, right in my face.
3: I don't wait in lines. I got a fucking gun. Everyone backed Tyler up and also told this guy to leave.
6: He was so tweaked out, he pulled out a pack of like a six-pack of beer and left it on the ground and then left erratically, like, did a burnout.
3: When I spoke with Brianna about this incident, she said this individual was actually chasing people down with his car, trying to run them over. People were fleeing. He was threatening to kill everyone.
6: And he drives out erratically, almost hits a couple people, and then at the very end of it, almost kills Bo Bigelow. Bo Bigelow was at the the gate front and center telling people what to do when they would come in and he almost got taken out like straight up just ran over
3: Tyler pulled out his walkie talkie we got this
6: motherfucker in this Ford F-150, tan F-150 almost killed Bo and got in my fucking face like this motherfucker's gonna kill somebody Robert Spangle heard that and Keegan also heard that too he's like Tyler, you got to calm down. You got to tell us what happened.
3: Tyler would not calm down.
6: He's drunk. He's tweaked out. There's something wrong with him. He needs to get pulled over and taken out right away.
3: In talking with other people who were there that day, this individual is apparently well-known in the community as someone who has substance abuse issues. The rumors I've heard but can't confirm say in the first day or two of the fire, his house burned down. It wasn't long before Robert at his perch radioed back that he had eyes on the Ford truck. Robert tried to call the police too, but couldn't get signal. He watched the truck go right past his lookout, doing 70 in a 25 mile an hour zone. He watched the car slam on the brakes in the middle of the road. And then a woman who was just walking on the street took off running away from the car. Then Robert heard police sirens which the man also heard. He pulled into a nearby blind driveway. It had big hedges on both sides of it, so his car was hidden. And it worked. The police drove right past. Back at the relief center?
6: At that point, because of how intense the interaction was between him and I and the rest of the people there, we all thought he was going to come back. And like, who knows, maybe start shooting up the place or doing something, you know? And so at that point, we all freaked out at the relief center and we blockaded it with trucks.
3: They closed the gates. They also started moving people away from the main area, like you might do in an active shooter drill. Except this was getting dangerously close to not a drill. Back at the headlands, Robert could still see the car, hidden down the driveway, which just happened to be right across the street from his house. He didn't want to lose sight of the guy, so he decided to leave his post. This was the one moment, the one time, that Robert left the headlands. The first time in four days. On the way down, Robert realized that his radio battery was dying and that he left his spare on the hill. But he continued anyways. At his house, he reached into his parked car and he grabbed a handgun. He hid it underneath his jacket and walked across the street. He never imagined he'd be using his military training outside of his own home, in Malibu, of all places. Robert waved down a father and son driving. They pulled over and agreed to use their car to block the man's car in. The man was in the driveway, and when he realized he couldn't drive out, he started screaming at Robert, saying he was gonna kill him, ranting about Donald Trump and other conspiracy theories. He kept saying he was going to take care of Robert, and he was going to get something from his truck. Robert kept repeating he was gonna defend himself, and to stay back. The man went to his truck anyways and grabbed something out of it. But Robert couldn't see what.
6: We were like all on pins and needles, like on the radio, like trying to get Robert to respond back. Like, Robert, where you at? Like, what's happened with this guy? Like, you had eyes on him. What's going on?
3: They kept trying to radio him, But he didn't respond. Five minutes, no response. Ten minutes, nothing. The minutes ticked by. Silence from Robert. Robert's radio was totally dead. And the situation was getting worse, fast. The man jumped in the car blocking him in. The keys were still in the ignition, and now he was trying to figure out how to get the car in drive. Robert knew this was the moment to act. He got the man's attention and told him to stop. He leaned down to the passenger side of the car and then raised his arms in a way that showed the gun under his jacket. The man stopped and put his hands up. Within a few seconds, the cops arrived. After the man was in custody, Robert went back to his post. And then, he put a new battery in his radio.
6: There was a really heavy 30 minutes before we heard back, Robert back on the radio, or somebody back on the radio saying this guy was, you know, finally arrested. And that's when everything just got really heavy and really gnarly for everybody. Because we were like, everything was going good, but this is like a serious moment of like, holy shit. Everyone was getting paranoid, kind of, in a way, where it was like so many things could go wrong. And we've been so lucky.
3: At the end of the day, their nightly meeting got heated. They had come so close to disaster. Too close for some people's ragged state.
6: So, like, all this pressure just eventually came to a head that night because there were so many difficult and hairy and dangerous moments where we all put our lives on the line or, you know, great bodily harm in some way, one way or another. And it it all got to us. And that night, especially after that guy came through, and we all had, like, a real real deep discussion, and we, we really, like, Let's say, like, we just rode down.
3: (laughs) This guy coming through was, in a way, a test of all of their systems. Their communication, collective decision-making, the skills each one of them brought to the group. And, also, their trust in each other. And they passed, surviving to live another day in the wild aftermath of this fire. The next day, Wednesday, November 13th, they drove all the gas, about 500 to 600 gallons, down to Zuma Beach and left it. No more gas at the relief center, period. It was around this time that the group took on its name.
2: We weren't like calling ourselves anything. And then I saw, that, then I saw a sign right over there that was like a big sign that somebody had painted. And it said, Thank you, Point Doom Bombers, and then underneath it said and firemen too. And it was like, whoa, alright.
3: There is some debate about when this friend group started to be called the Point Doom Bombers. Until this moment, the original surfers, who were now all old men, had guarded this name as their own. No one would have dared called themselves the Point Doom Bombers in Malibu. Leo says it wasn't a group decision. It just came about naturally.
8: We wanted to kind of honor what they did for us as far as like shape this community and Point Doom especially and some of them that still live here were kind of wanting wanted to kind of like have the name live on, so it felt like a necessary time to or an appropriate time to bring it back.
3: Sam again. For us,
8: at least in, like our
2: generation. The Point Doom Bombers were always, like, this legend. We've heard so many stories about how it was back then, and it's a very special thing for, I think, most of the people that grew up on the point. And Keegan and I were talking. I was like, should we use that name? I don't know. Like, I don't know. And so we asked a couple of the older guys, and they were like, yeah, for sure. Like, you know, you guys earned it.
3: I wanted to know if this was true, so I asked Tim Bigelow, one of the original Point Doom Bombers from the 70s. If they had asked for permission,
0: Oh no, they just used it. they just went out. Now, they, they wanted to call themselves point to bombers.
3: But at the same time, he said what they did reminded him of the old days when the originals protected the point, and that
0: he approves. You know, it's cool because it's a legacy that you know I was part of when it started, and to hear it's still going. That's what Malibu was like back then. Every time there was a disaster, uh, everybody pulled together. And, and then, so after the Woolsey fire, that's, that was the same thing. It, f- it felt just like that again.
3: I thought I'd ask another original what he thought. Here's Kirby Kotler.
6: I'd say if anyone has earned the right to use the name, let it be them. They did something good with it. This was a stand that they took as their group of friends, and they ran with it. I have absolute pride for that, man, and respect. That's who I am. I know what my level of commitment is and loyalty and localism is, and I saw it in all those kids during the same.
3: For him, it's a glimmer of hope that Malibu's culture of taking matters into your own hands and community self-determination might live on in the next generation.
6: And I was really, really stoked to finally see that from the younger generations that kind of let things just slip away. And these guys jumped in hard. I've never seen this much participation. And these guys are young bucks. I'm stoked that they were on board. I couldn't even tell you how stoked I was.
3: Five days into the siege, their careful accounting showed they'd poured close to 1,500 gallons of fuel and counted 229 people on their list, many of whom had come back multiple times. They had fed hundreds of people three meals a day. They'd moved hundreds of pounds of generators, food, water, everything you can imagine. They'd done more than I even have time to go into. But they had also been pushed to the edge, run ragged, worn down. It was time to recharge. Kelly walked around that Wednesday afternoon with Skylar Peak. He's the city council member who Leo snuck in with. And you might recognize his last name, Peak, from the second episode. Dusty Peak was the most notorious of the original Point Doom bombers. Skylar is his son.
5: Eventually we wandered back to his house, we're like, let's go surf. Yeah. Let's go
7: surf you
5: know it's time to go it's time to fucking go surf
3: they went down just the two of them to little Doom Beach where they'd grown up paddling out it was untouched by fire and underneath the cliffs they couldn't see any of the burn zones in the mountains or the rest of the point
5: we we're like whoa everybody needs to do that now
3: they went to go round up everyone in the group
5: we were walking through the streets like we were walking with boards without shirts and trunks. And seeing people go by, it kind of turned people's heads, saying like, oh, it's okay to like, actually, it's okay, everything's fine.
6: Skyler Peak opened up his doors to all of his surfboards and his collection. Everyone grabbed and just went straight down there.
3: All the bombers, every single one of them, paddled out. With no one else in the water, the point was all theirs.
6: I remember... Us going out there, and every fucking wave was a party wave. Like, we all just would surf in the same wave together and just be, like, so thankful and so grateful that we're done. Our job is, like, mission accomplished. Like, we could just let loose.
5: It was the best surf session of my life, and I think everybody will
8: say that. Felt like it was probably what it was 60 years ago or 70 years ago, so it was pretty pretty dreamy.
5: Like, the best
6: surf session of all time.
3: And Sam...
8: Yeah, that was nice.
2: That was nice.
3: It was a return to their core.
5: Because we had forgotten that that's what we love to do, and we had taken on this whole other mission, to be in the water felt it just just recharged
8: everything and just kind of made everything okay. It felt nice, to, you know, it, especially just getting the ocean after something like that and kind of like... You know, our, the ocean's kind of like our church, so we were always fortunate to go into the ocean.
3: Robert came down from the headlands for good. He went swimming with the group because he doesn't surf, but he wasn't about to be the only guy on the beach.
2: In the fifth day when we all kind of went out surfing, that was, had very much had a feeling of relief and sort of the feeling of like a baptism. I mean, everyone was getting clean for the first time. It was really refreshing.
3: Also... He hadn't had a shower in five days. The sun was shining. With the fire getting closer to full containment, with every passing day, and more and more of Malibu's evacuation orders being lifted, the danger had passed. While Sam described this surf session as nice, I think he also felt this marked a return to themselves.
2: The whole reason why... I think a lot of us stay and why we care so much about this place is because at heart this community is just a bunch of surfers and that's why everyone loves it here so much that's why we're here you know if i didn't surf i wouldn't care to be here i think that's what kind of makes you want to stay during a fire and protect it and so when you like go and get to when we went and got to surf that day it kind of is like a reminder of you know, this is this is our home, this is our place, this is why we're doing this.
3: You might be thinking to yourself, what a wonderful ending. Them surfing off into the proverbial sunset and everybody lives happily ever after. But that's not how this story ends. For the Point Doom Bombers, this is just the beginning. The beginning of a very long road. Of learning how to live in a community that's in ashes. Of learning how to live with a sense of security that's been shattered. Knowing it will happen again. But that's the thing about sandcastles. While they're fragile, they can be pieced back together. When they crumble, when nature destroys them, they can be rebuilt. And in that moment, there's an opportunity to do things differently. That on the last episode of Sandcastles. This episode was reported, produced, and hosted by me, Adriana Cargill. Editing by Sasha Woodruff. Story editing by Adam Whitney Nichols. Mixing and mastering by Kathleen Yor. Music by Marcelo de Oliveira. Theme song by Medium Zach. Fact-checking by Audrey Regan. Graphic design by Tomás Biasignor. This episode is a Wavemaker Media production. Thanks to Benjamin Oreskes from the LA Times for the cell phone footage of Paradise Cove. One more thing before you go, this show is produced by a very small team. Everyone has full-time jobs working on nights and weekends over the course of years. If you want to support independent storytelling, the biggest thing you can do is go to Apple Podcasts and rate it five stars. And if you have time, leave a review. I know, every podcast asks for this, but it's especially important for independent podcasts like this one. Thanks for listening, and see you on the next episode of Sandcastles.